Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast that seeks to recover authentic Christianity and live it out today. How should translators render the word proskuneo into English? Since this word has a range of meanings, from bowing as a sign of respect to worshiping God, translators sometimes decide what English words to use based more on their theological presuppositions than the grammar or textual context. For example, some translations, mostly those done by evangelicals, employ the language of worship when proskuneo is done to Jesus, but then interpret the exact same term as merely a respectful gesture when done to others. This, I suggest, is another smoking gun of translation bias. Here now is episode 349, part 20 of our Bible class, Bow or Worship, Translating Proskuneo. We're in a series on analyzing bias in translation. Last time we looked at Philippians 2, verses 6 and 7. This time we're looking at translation bias in the word worship or bow down. And then next time we'll look at Colossians chapter 1. I've got about five of these worked out for you that we're going to be examining. To get us started today, let's look at this word proskuneo, which is this really important Greek word that we're going to be wrestling with. Here is the BDAG definition for proskuneo. It says, frequently used to designate the custom of prostrating oneself before persons and kissing their feet or the hem of their garment, the ground, etc. The Persians did this in the presence of their deified king and the Greeks before a divinity or something holy. Uh, so this is how this word can be used. Then they give a very specific definition within the New Testament. They say, to express in attitude or gesture one's complete dependence on or submission to a high authority figure. Fall down and worship. Do obeisance to. Prostrate oneself before. Do reverence to. Welcome respectfully. Uh, I think of bowing in Asian cultures as a, a very similar parallel where it is a, a sign of respect, but it's also used as a greeting. Uh, and so it is with proskuneo. Uh, you see it all over the New Testament. Uh, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it's all over the place. It's done to God. It's done to humans. It's done to landowners or the king. Um, there's a whole wide range of individuals that would receive proskuneo. And this is because their society, the Middle Eastern culture, was highly stratified where people knew their, their place in the society. And you have certainly God at the top, but then you have the king and you have the high priest and then you have uh, prophets and these different high status positions. But then below that, you've got elders who would be in charge of any village and that people would be compelled to show respect to. Um, and then you have other kinds of situations b below that. And at the bottom, you have children. You know, children are just like... No, nothing really below children, uh, maybe a slave or something like that. But, uh, you know, everywhere along the line, you're going to show respect to the higher ranking kind of person than you are. Now, for me as an American in the 21st century, this doesn't, this is not my world. You know, we, we if we see somebody getting too lifted up with pride, we, we feel a desire to tear them down and be like, oh, you think you're so great, right? Ours is much more of an egalitarian society than theirs. Uh, but 
we have to read the Bible on its own terms, right? And so that's their world. That's the way the Jewish world worked. That's the way the Roman world worked. That's the way the Greek world worked. And we need to recognize that and understand the Bible. Now this word proskuneo does also have a Hebrew equivalent, and that is the word chava. And that is defined by the halot, the Hebrew Aramaic lexicon of the Old Testament, as meaning to bow down. The equivalents are in Akkadian, sukinu, in Arabic, siyada, and then proskinin, which is uh, just the infinitive form of proskuneo, the word that we're looking at here. So this is the Hebrew equivalent of our Greek word, and it goes on furthermore to define this word chava as bow down before a higher person, like a beggar would do, or supplicants before someone in authority, Absalom before David, a bride before the king, a woman before a man, before a prophet, metaphorically the nations before Israel, or two, to bow down in worship before the stars, before Pestle, which is the word for idol, before Ramon, which is the name of a god in a temple, before the holy mountain, uh, generally as an attitude of prayer. It's a word that designates an action showing a sign of respect by bowing down to the ground. Uh, in that, that act can be done to God, can be done to a human, can be done to lots of different people, depending on the situation you're in. The first one I want to look at is where a slave bows to a master in a parable that Jesus tells. So this is a, clearly a non-religious context. And then the other one is where the Magi come and bow before Jesus when he's a child. And I'm going to look at how each of these translations do, because as it turns out, the phrase is identical between the two verses we're looking at. So first one up is going to be Matthew 18:26. Very, very literal translation reads, Falling therefore the slave was bowing to him, saying, Be patient with me. The NET renders it, Then the slave threw himself to the ground before him, saying, Be patient with me. This is this word proskuneo here, combined with this other word, pipto or peson, as is uh, conjugated here. So it's, it's the idea of falling down and then also bowing. The NET translates it, the slave threw himself down on the ground. It's a little bit of an exaggerated translation, but I, I think it communicates pretty well. NIV reads, at this, the servant fell on his knees before him. So translated two words, one falling and one bowing, as one act falling on his knees. The NAB translates it, uh, he fell down and did him homage. That's actually a very literal translation. And then also the NRSV, so the slave fell on his knees before him. The NRSV and the NIV and the NET, these ones here, take these two words, falling down and bowing, and combine them into one act in the translation. They sort, they sort of like see it as redundant, I guess, and they don't want to um, really over-translate it. Whereas the NAB and uh, some of your more literal translations will mention him falling down and doing homage or obeisance to the superior. How come none of these translators use the W word here? Proskuneo is also the word for worship, right? So why didn't they use the word worship here? Because everybody knows this guy's not worshiping the master. He's just begging him for, you know, some time to pay off the debt. That's different, right? So, and this, this kind of brings up the whole issue of uh, vocabulary and lexicography and some of these issues that we've looked at in the past, which is 
in modern American English, worship is something that is only done to God. However, in their world, they didn't have a special word that only applied to God. They could sit, apply the same word proskuneo to God as they, reply, uh, as they apply to human superiors. All right? So we have to be careful not to read our own bias into this or translate in such a way that sort of takes advantage of the modern bias for the W word to imply deity. So uh, let's take a look at another example, Matthew 2.11, where we see the exact same two words, falling down and bowing, in the following translations, same ones I just looked at a second ago. The literal of this Greek verse in Matthew 2.11 is, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and falling they bowed to him. The NET translates it, they saw the child with Mary his mother, they bowed down and worshipped him. In the previous verse, the NET took these two words, falling and bowing, and combined it into one, say, fell on his knees. Okay, but now, well, it's, it's to Jesus, so it's got to be worship. And so now they break it apart to emphasize it, even though it's the same phrase. The NIV reads, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. The NAB, they saw the child with Mary's mother, they prostrated themselves and did him homage. So there's a lot more consistency, again, with the Catholic Bible than we see with the evangelical translations, the NET and the NIV, which are both mainstream evangelicals. Then the NRSV, they saw the child with his mother, with Mary's mother, and they knelt down and paid him homage. Matthew chapter 2 records the events surrounding the coming of the Magi to visit Jesus and his uh, family to give the different presents, right? We typically think about this during Christmas time. What do the Magi people believe, though, is going on in the situation? Is there any reason to think the Magi believed this child was God? If they thought this child was God, then I could see translating it as worship, as the NET and the NIV both do. But we don't have to guess. This is one of these great incidents where we don't have to guess, it's not conjecture. It actually tells us what they thought. And that's in Matthew chapter 2, verse 1, quoting from the NRSV, it says, In the time of King Herod, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, asking, where is the child who has been born king of the Jews? For we observed his star at its rising and have come to pay him homage. When King Herod heard this, he was frightened and all Jerusalem with him. And calling together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. We have the Magi coming in. They have one simple question. Where's the king? We saw a star, the king has been born, the king of the Jews. Where is he? We'd like to go proskuneo him. We'd like to go pay him homage, bow before him, show him proper respect. Herod interprets that as Messiah because for them, king of the Jews just is the same as Messiah. So Herod asks his experts, his scholars, where's the Messiah going to be born again? And then they tell him the prophecy about Bethlehem from Micah. And then, you know, he ends up sending his cronies there to try to kill all the, the, the young people. who was like two, two years old and younger. But here's, here's what's so interesting about this. The Magi believed they were looking for a king. Not a god, a king. Herod is looking for the Messiah, which is just a Jewish way of saying a king. Nobody thinks this child's God in, in, the, in the chapter, okay? So the whole scene is one of royalty. It's not a religious scene, it's a royal scene. 
A new king is born. These wise men come from the east because they have seen a sign and they come to honor the young king and to show respect. But the evangelical Bibles could not help but translate this word bow as the word worship, whereas the Catholics and the mainliners were more honest about the context of what's going on in chapter 2. Now, do Catholics and mainliners believe Jesus is God? Yes, they do. But they don't believe the Magi believed Jesus was God in Matthew 2, and so they restricted their translation to what was possible based on the context, whereas the evangelicals nudged everyone, uh, if you want to be a little more crass about it, forced everyone to have that in mind rather than just being honest with what it says or leaving it ambiguous. If you just translate it as bow down, it's ambiguous. It could mean worship or it might just mean a sign of respect, which frees them you know, in, in these other translations to do different things. So here's what Jason David Badoon said about this in his book, Truth in Translation, uh, which I recommend. He writes, translators have interpreted the gesture referred to by the Greek term proskuneo as implying worship. They then have substituted that interpretation in place of translation. I'm not going to enter into a debate over interpretation. It is always possible that the interpretation of the significance of the gesture may be correct, but the simple translation prostrate or do homage or do obeisance is certainly correct. So then the question is raised, why depart from a certain, accurate translation to a questionably, possibly inaccurate one? The answer is that when this occurs, the translators seem to feel the need to add to the New Testament support for the idea that Jesus was recognized to be God. When we observe how these same translators choose worship when the gesture is made to Jesus by certain persons and choose other English words to translate the very same Greek term when the gesture is directed to someone other than Jesus or is directed to Jesus by someone whom they regard as not qualifying as a true believer, their inconsistency reveals their bias. The Reformation fought for the access of all believers to the Bible and the right of the individual to directly encounter and interpret the text. Modern translators undermine that cause when they publish interpretations rather than translations, still trying to direct readers to the understanding acceptable to the beliefs and biases of the translators themselves. So this brings us to the whole subject of circular reasoning. The Bible says Jesus was worshipped. Okay, so then we add in the presupposition, well, only God is worshipped, and so we conclude Jesus is God. But then, these people who already believe Jesus is God, the translators, decide, well, since Jesus is God, when bowing happens to Jesus, we should translate it as worship. Which leads, once again, to the Bible reader encountering the Bible saying, Jesus was worshipped, which eventually brings us round and round to the conclusion that Jesus is God and that Jesus worshipped over and over again. It doesn't prove anything. It just goes around and around in a circle. You prove your premise that you started with. You're not actually proving any kind of a conclusion. This is major, majorly problematic, this first one here. Translating bow as worship. Okay, that shouldn't happen. Just translate it what it is. Just, just say what it is. You don't need to import your, your, uh, your bias into it. So I do have a problem with that. I prefer you to leave the ambiguity, let people decide for themselves if the bowing is out of respect or if it's religious worship, and just leave that ambiguity 
there. Secondly, I have a problem with this statement, only God is worshipped. This is simply false. It's not true. Let's look at a clear example from 1 Chronicles chapter 29, verse 20. Here's what the American Standard Version rendered it. And David said to all the assembly, Now bless Jehovah your God, and all the assembly blessed Jehovah the God of their fathers, and bowed down their heads, and worshipped Jehovah and the king. Worshipped Jehovah and the king. It wasn't just God who received worship. The NIV translates this same verse, 1 Chronicles 29, 20, as, Then David said to the whole assembly, Praise the Lord your God. So they all praised the Lord, the God of their fathers. They bowed down, prostrating themselves before the Lord and the king. You see what's going on here? Question. Is this a religious context? I think it is a religious context. I mean, look at the verse again. It's talking about blessing Yahweh your God. And the assembly is bowing down to the God of their fathers. Right? They are, this is a religious context. Is it a royal context? It is also a royal context. If you read a few verses before this, you'll see what's really going on here is that David is installing Solomon as the next king. This is part of his coronation ceremony. But in the ancient world, there is no separation between church and state. A, a royal enthronement is also a religious service. And so they worship God and the king or they bowed to God and the king. And you see how the NIV is sort of like tripping over itself. Whoa, 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 there's a human being that's receiving worship. We gotta, let's translate it prostrating. Whereas anytime it was to Jesus, they translated it as worship. This is the kind of inconsistency that tells us that there's bias, theological bias driving the decisions. Now to be clear, I'm not suggesting that they worship the king as God. I'm not saying that. However, the king is especially in this, in this case here, God's representative on earth. We see something similar with the prophets who bring God's message to the earth or the priests, especially like the high priest who stands in for God to the people and for the people to God as this intermediary. Uh, these are people that stand in for God in some way. Let's take a look at another example related to Jesus. This one is from Philippians 2, verses 9 through 11. It reads, this is from the NIV, Therefore God exalted him, Jesus, to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. See, we're talking about worship again, right? Every knee is going to bow to Jesus in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So the second half of the Carmen Christi, the Song of Christ here in Philippians 2, is the part of exaltation. The first is humiliation, and the second is exaltation, right? So who are we to say that God can't exalt a human being to such a high place? Who are we to say that God can't authorize a human being to receive worship? Who are we to say that? If God wants to do that, then God can do it. He invests Jesus with this incredible authority. He exalts Jesus to his right hand. He, he determines, decrees that every tongue will confess Jesus is Lord, but it's not in competition with him. It's to the glory of God. This reminds me of Mother's Day. Uh, I wonder if you can relate to this. Any dads out there with young kids? Uh, this, is, this is something that happens for a lot of us. You have the kids help you make breakfast for mom. And uh, really, as the dad, you're doing all the work. In fact, it would actually be even faster if the kids didn't help 
you to make breakfast. Let's say you're making pancakes and some uh, uh, some sausage or something, and you know, so like you, the kids are helping, but you're really running the show, and you're getting all this together, and then uh, finally, and then you have the kid bring the breakfast in, or you have the kid uh, invite the, the mother to the table, whether it's breakfast in bed or at a table, whatever, and and the mother comes out and she gushes. And she's like, oh, I can't believe, you know, my five-year-old did this. Aren't you just such, a, aren't you the greatest kid in the world? I'm so thankful for you. And, and the, the mother's just gushing over this kid. And what father among you would uh, get jealous, stand in front of the kid and say, actually, I did most of the work here. What about me? No, of course not. You, you authorize that child to do it. You aided that child and do it, and then you push the child out the door with the tray so that the child will be in the right place at the right time so that the mother would receive that gift, right? And so the praise of the child is indirectly also a praise to the parent who's behind the child actually pulling the strings in this case. Uh, and you're not upset to see your child receive all these accolades and all this honor and all this glory for making breakfast. No, you're happy for your child, right? You don't feel like your child's taking away. Now, if your child said, oh, I did it all by myself, nobody helped me, well, then we'd have a problem, okay? No, no question there. But that's not what Jesus does with this relationship between Jesus and God. Yes, Jesus is receiving this incredible honor and this incredible glory. We can even use the word worship for it, but it doesn't mean that he's doing it over against the Father who gave him that exaltation and that authority. I don't want to get too into theology here because this is really a class about Bible translation, but I do want to look at one more text just in the few minutes that we have left here in Revelation chapter 4 and chapter 5. In Revelation chapter 4 is the introduction of God on his throne. It's, you should read it. It's phenomenal. It's just all these different creatures worshiping God and he's just uh, described in these incredibly exalted terms as, as far as like his throne and the sounds and the sights. And uh, it says in there that the angelic hosts praise God. They call him holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. And they praise him who lives forever and they praise him who created all things and that by your will they existed and were created. These are the, the specific reasons that they're praising God and Revelation chapter 4, and then in chapter 5, the Lamb enters the scene. And of course, the Lamb is a symbol for Jesus, the resurrected, exalted, ascended Jesus. And Jesus enters the scene, and now Jesus is praised for being worthy to open the seals of the book. And Jesus is praised and given honor and glory for purchasing and ransoming people with his blood for God uh, and for making this people a kingdom and priests to reign upon the earth. Jesus is praised for these specific things. And then the heavenly host praises both God and Jesus. In chapter 5, verse 13, we read, Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them, saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshipped. So we see God is praised for being eternal and for creation in chapter 4. And we see the Lamb praised for redeeming mankind with His blood in chapter 5. And then we see both given praise and honor and glory and power at the end of chapter 5. Now, this to me makes perfect sense as far as what 
Jesus can receive and what the Father should receive, and it is, is very clear in my head. But some translators don't want to leave it there. They, need, they feel like they need to nudge the reader into thinking that everyone, everyone and their mother thought Jesus was God during his ministry. I, I don't see the reason for that. This is inserting your interpretation into Scripture. And I think I've shown in a very limited way, I mean, I have other resources that I can refer you to in the notes for this episode that are much more extensive, that even if someone receives worship, as the king did in 1 Chronicles 29.20, or as the exalted and ascended lamb did in Revelation 5, it doesn't, it doesn't mean that that person is God either. It just means that God has authorized it. So uh, I think it's really a mistake to translate proskuneo is worship all the time, especially when it's not clear that that's what's in people's head. And the bottom line for today is just simply to recognize that bias, when it intrudes in our translations, it really does nudge people to a certain theological understanding. And your key to sniffing that out is to look at other translations outside your own tradition or outside the tradition of whatever Bible you commonly use so that you can see what other people from different angles are going to render those same words. And once again, I know I've said this like a hundred times, read the footnotes, read the study notes. You know, I mean, it really does help so many times on these things. Well, that's enough for now. Next time we'll look at Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, and the question, firstborn of or firstborn over? in our continuing quest to understand how we got the Bible. All right, that's it for this one. What do you all think? Do you believe Jesus should be worshipped? Do you believe that the translators are inappropriately influenced by bias? Or do you think it's fine what they're doing here? I would love to hear your thoughts. Log on to restitudio.org and check out episode 349, Bauer Worship, Translating Proskuneo, and add your comment or ask your question. We'd love to hear from you. Also, just to let you know, I am very much influenced by the presentation that Dr. Dale Tuggy did a couple years back on this same issue of worshiping Jesus or not, and uh, he used some really good analogies and helpful examples to process through the logic of New Testament worship. So I'll include a link to his presentation in the show notes for this episode. And I also have my own presentation that I did that you may find useful as well. In addition, James Dunn wrote a book on this subject called Did the First Christians Worship Jesus? The New Testament Evidence. It came out 10 years ago. And it more systematically, obviously, goes through the evidence on this whole question. Uh, one last scholar just to mention is Larry Hurtado, the late Larry Hurtado, actually the late James Dunn and the late Larry Hurtado. Um, both died within the last few months, but Hurtado's work on this, this same subject is also very interesting, and uh, he's got a couple of books out on it. And last of all, just to mention one little piece of history that almost always gets brought up whenever this subject comes into view, and that is a little excerpt, a little quotation from Pliny the Younger, the governor of Bithynia, in his correspondence to the Roman emperor Trajan in the second century. He wrote about how he had captured some Christians, had arrested them, had tortured them to find out what this new cult, what this new religious movement was all about, he learned that they would meet early in the morning, that they would sing songs to 
Jesus as to a god. Now, in Pliny's world, in the Greco-Roman world of the second century, there were lots of gods. And when a Roman person says the word God, you should, in most cases, not assume a capital G. And this is why almost all translations will actually render that in, in English as a lowercase g and say a God, a lowercase g God. Because from a Roman perspective or, or Greek perspective, the world is full of gods. You've got the famous gods that uh, actually end up being planet names like Jupiter and Mars and so on that the Romans worship, but then you also have local deities and you've got deceased Caesars who end up being promoted to the level of gods upon death in, in a number of cases. So for a human man to live in heaven, from a Roman perspective, is clearly in the category of lowercase g, God. But should we then take the interpretation of a pagan and use that as evidence that early Christians were worshiping Jesus as God in a Trinitarian sense or as God in a modalistic sense that they thought he was the Father? This is just so far out of view of Pliny's observation that it's obviously just reading in later controversies into this early quotation. If a human being is living in heaven, the Romans would call that kind of a being, and they regularly believed there were such beings, gods. That doesn't mean that they thought he, that they were the god. Uh, again, that's not the biblical category. These are the Greco-Roman categories for it. So I think we have to be careful in using this quotation to make a big point about early Christians thinking that Jesus just is God, uh, rather than understanding what Pliny was saying in his own context and his own time. Pliny would have also identified all the angels of the Bible as gods as well. Does that mean that Jews are polytheists? I mean, come on. So that's just a little corrective to this uh, Pliny issue that does show up from time to time. I'll leave a I'll leave a link to the quotation I have in, in mind here so you can chase that down yourself if you're interested more in this subject of did the earliest Christians worship Jesus, and if they did, what did that mean? What did that imply? Well, that's it for this episode. We'll see you next time. If you'd like to support Restitutio, come on over to restitutio.org where you can make a donation, and we'll see you next time. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.